You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Now, how do we feel, because we're running slightly ahead of time, if I could ask Helen Pickford-Campbell to come up, and then shall we break early for lunch? If you're happy, Alison, are you happy with that? Yeah? So if we finish at ten past twelve and then return at ten to one, so that gives you an hour and whatever it is. Is that so? Is that alright with everyone? Yeah? apologise on behalf of Noel, um, who's the director of Historic Towns Forum and who wasn't able to come today, so um, I'm doing it all on my own. <laughs> um, so yes, this is a sort of modern form of superstition that um, the European Union and DCMS have come up with, um, where they're trying to measure the participation of volunteers in the historic built environment and um, the heritage sector using statistics. Um, and what I'm going to talk about today is how I think two really profound misunderstandings of what volunteers do and who they are, um, combined with um, you know a completely catastrophic method of trying to measure what they do and what their impact is statistically, um, is sort of creating a <coughs> really disastrously inaccurate um, understanding of. Um, the contribution of volunteers to the historic built environment. Um, so this is what, um, sort of in order I'm going through, so trying to turn participation and engagement into statistics, which is a pretty difficult thing to do anyway. Um, social and economic understandings of what volunteering is. SNET is um, European Social Statistics. It's just as much fun as it sounds. Um, and it's statistics developed by the European Union to measure social engagement. It's, yeah. <laughs> Ask me about the knitted tracksuits when we get to the question section. Ask me about knitted tracksuits. Um, and then, because um, I'm looking at how volunteering is understood, um, I'm going to talk a bit about the sort of the blurring of the categories as it's happening in the heritage and historic built environment at the moment. Um, between um, professionals and volunteers. So this is what the DCMS say that they want to do. Um, they say that they want to protect and promote our cultural and artistic heritage um, to help businesses and communities to grow. So this is kind of the policy aim, is to have um, your cultural and artistic heritage able to sort of help economic development. Um, it's not necessarily something that we would all agree with, but on the other hand, you know, it's not actively seeking to destroy um, the, the, the cultural and artistic heritage. Um, and this is how they try to do it, and this is where I start to disagree with them. So they try to measure the importance of um, culture and heritage to people statistically. Um, so that the relevant bits here are in red. Um, policy, politicians and policy makers 
appear to care most about the, the economic and social outcomes. And that's not really what most communities are interested in. And as a result, relationships between the public, politicians and professionals have become dysfunctional. Um, and the second quote there, the lack of robust evidence about cultural participation frustrates the possibility of meeting the political aspirations of government. What they're saying is we don't have enough evidence of how people participate in this sector um, to be able to form policies usefully um, around people's engagement. Relatively few projects are able to identify the socio-demographic characteristics of the participants. <coughs> so in other words, they're measuring to some extent how many people engage um, in the historic built environment um, and in the heritage sector, but they don't really know who these people are. Um, it's kind of a conundrum of this whole area that the UNESCO and um, the European Union recognise that simply measuring statistically who is getting engaged, who is visiting, isn't actually a very good way of producing policy in this area, um, but they do it anyway. So this is the European Social Statistics Network. Um, I just cut out the section on heritage museums, historical places, and archaeological sites. I don't know if you can read that at all. If you look across the top, creation, production and publishing, dissemination, trade, preservation, education, and management and regulation are the areas that the European Union categorise. And of course, they do this for you know, art galleries, archives, you know, all sorts of things. I've just cut out the heritage section. And as you can see, the creation column is just completely empty. There is no creativity going on in heritage museums, historical places, or archaeological sites. Nobody is contributing any creativity of any sort in any of those areas of the sector. And if you look at production and publishing, for example, recognition of historical heritage, that's it recognition is not a particularly ambitious goal um, for the heritage sector. Dissemination and trade. You've got museum exhibitions, you know, so people are sort of swapping exhibits, and you've got um, trade of antiquities. But again, nothing sort of particularly new, innovative or creative um, listed in the sector. And I think the most depressing one um, management and regulation is listed as administrative management by state, local or other bodies. So again, there's really no recognition of um, you know, how people contribute to the management of their own environments, their own historic sectors. Um, so this is actually in the UK rather than just the whole, um, the, the, the whole European Union. Um, the DCMS looked at it in quite an interesting way. They looked at it in terms of why people don't participate in various areas, which is why these figures are quoted as negative numbers, if you see what I mean. So it's acknowledged that as a quantitative survey, taking part is not the best tool for collecting in-depth information 
about why individuals don't participate in culture and sport. There's this enormously frustrating aspect that they recognise that statistics just don't work in this area, but they continue to produce statistics anyway. And in this case, they produce statistics on why people don't do things, because they were looking at what barriers prevent them, which I think is in itself quite an interesting way of looking at things. So the taking part survey, 29% of adults did not participate in visiting heritage sites. Well, of course, you could say, you know, 71, what is it, 70, you know, did participate. Um, that's actually very, very good compared with the 55% who didn't visit a library, 77% who did not participate in the arts, and 78% who didn't participate in sport. So if you looked at it positively, very large percentages of people do participate in visiting heritage sites. But again, it's just listed as visiting. There's no recognition that you know people might do a bit more, contribute a bit more than just visit. Um, yes, yeah, so that's why those are reported um, negatively. And if we move on to how the DCMS and the European Union understand volunteers, um, volunteers are important because they contribute in supplementary roles. They free up paid staff to do more important work, basically. They're perceived as lay people, um, as amateurs. Organisations don't actively select volunteers, they just accept whoever turns up. Um, they're perceived as complements to real paid staff. Um, and in fact, they can be a bit of a nuisance. Um, they cause conflicts, they cause additional workload because you have to manage them. Um, paid staff get irritated because they have to deal with volunteers and they're worried about the loss of quality of work. The implication is that unpaid workers are just not going to do a very good job. And what we found um, in the project that we're um, doing at the Historic Towns Forum, we've interviewed a lot of volunteers and a lot of people who employ volunteers, about 38 um, different organisations and volunteers so far. And we found that this is completely wrong in every possible respect. And actually what volunteers are doing are very often absolutely core function, absolutely crucial work, and very often in the historic built environment, absolutely essential, highly skilled work. They're not just sort of, you know, serving the tea or greeting visitors, you know, they are making policy decisions, they're updating legal frameworks for things, they're running neighbourhood plans, um, you know, they're, they're doing absolutely core essential work. Um, and one of the reasons that they're doing it is something that's come up several times so far today, is this loss of expert capacity. Um, and I'm sure you're all familiar with these very depressing statistics. Um, I think somebody already quoted this one, local authority staff have lost about 18% since 2003. Um, 835 full-time equivalent jobs, 35% decline in conservation officers, 26% decline in archaeological officers. 
So this is leaving a massive skills gap, and in some areas where highly skilled volunteers are available, um, these gaps are actually being filled by people who, in many cases, used to be professionals. Um, so they're now retired. Um, they've gone from you know, being a retired architect to taking over highly skilled jobs in this kind of um, work, except they're not getting paid for it anymore. Um, and uh, we could go through the statistics from you know, various different organisations, but a lot of jobs that used to be paid are now being done you know, to the same skill levels, if you're lucky, by people who just aren't paid to do the same work. Um, so what I've done um, is to characterise heritage volunteers, and I am really just talking about volunteers who work in heritage here, as very high impact amateurs. We've got to get away from this idea that volunteers are, you know, serving tea. Um, these people are doing incredibly skilled work in many cases. Um, so they're value-driven, they're passionate about the causes they work for, um, very often they're experts on their own you know, local historic community, the buildings and the resources, you know, the woodland and so on, things that we've talked about so far this morning. Very often they're coming from hugely skilled professional backgrounds. Um, <coughs> so they're taking that expertise forward into voluntary jobs. Um, they don't need very much training or supervision. In fact, a lot of them said that they would much rather just get on with it by themselves. They, they perceived themselves as very autonomous. They didn't want a lot of managing, and in some cases actively resented being managed by people who were 20 years younger than them, you know, <laughs> less experienced and so on. Um, and, you know, really, they, if they had clashes with their paid professional colleagues, it was because they felt that they you know, were being micromanaged rather than because they needed more training or whatever. Um, intern volunteers, so these are the ones who are doing MSCs, um, sometimes doctorates, um, the ones who are sort of doing it as part of their career enhancement. Um, I talked to a lot of organisations that were... Um, not employing them exactly because they weren't paying them, but you know, we're getting them to solve problems for them as part of their MSc or their doctorate. Um, and they were seen as absolutely critical for problem solving, um, bringing in fresh thinking, um, you know, really sort of innovative, rigorous, interesting ideas that these people were bringing in. Um, they're really not interested if you're doing an MSc or a, a doctorate in, you know, sort of doing data entry for an organisation or, you know, manning the desk or whatever. They wanted to be running archives, setting up websites, um, producing policy documents, um, deciding on budgetary spending for these organisations, this kind of task. And some volunteers who either felt that there was a sort of a gap that they needed to fill um, or, you know, couldn't find an organisation that was doing what they thought needed doing, set up their own organisations. Um, so again, you know, you're talking about management skills, recruiting, um, in some cases doing a lot of um, IT work, you know, setting up websites and tweeting about their um, organisations and so on. Um, and they were setting up organisations to run particular sites or to preserve a particular asset of some kind. 
um, you know, or to raise awareness of a particular um, critical problem in the heritage sector. And again, I think we've probably heard from several of them this morning. Um, but people who were doing this voluntarily, again, absolutely critical, creative, innovative, interesting contributions, which are just not recognised um, by the way that the sector um, analyses who's doing what. Um, so the picture that exists, if you look at, um, for example, the DCMS, is that the historic environment and the heritage sector is run by professionals for the benefit of passively consuming public. And this really isn't the case from what we found. We found that volunteers are actively producing um, the historic environment, actively creating heritage ideas. Um, not getting paid for it in many cases, but very, very actively involved in producing it. Um, and because of that, this is sort of moving into the next level of what um, the work at the Historic Towns Forum, what we want to advise um, people who are recruiting volunteers into organisations specifically in this sector. Um, and I'd be really, really interested on hearing your feedback about this, particularly if you are a volunteer or you work with volunteers. So if you are a paying organisation and you're recruiting volunteers, um, one of the things that we found absolutely consistently across organisations that recruit volunteers is that the way that they attract them is to offer opportunities to make friends. Um, you know, get out of the house, meet new people, um, you know, sort of effectively they're running free coffee mornings. And the kind of highly skilled, you know, expert volunteer that we're talking about here found that unbelievably patronising. They have social networks, they have professional networks, you know, they know the experts in their field already, they're perfectly willing to do unpaid work, they see themselves as doing it largely autonomously with very light touch management, and they really don't feel you know, attracted by the offer of cups of tea and making friends. Um, think about how you are going to offer them responsibility. If you are asking people to do very highly skilled work for free, it's unlikely that they're just going to accept being told what to do. They're going to want some influence. They're going to want some responsibility. Think about how your organisation is going to deal with that, and particularly how your paid staff are going to interact with unpaid staff who are making decisions. You might find that your paid staff have their noses put out of joint. You have to sort of manage that situation. Allow volunteer placements some autonomy, some flexibility in their aims um, for volunteers to contribute to outcomes. If you've already decided what the outcome of the volunteer place is going to be, it's going to be very difficult to recruit an expert to do it. They're going to want to contribute to what the outcomes are. You negotiate those. You don't just accept, but you do have to recognise that you know very skilled people are going to want to contribute to what um, is planned into the outcomes of the um, work. Recognise that you're going to have to manage relationships between paid and unpaid staff. That's an area that I'm working on at the moment. We don't have a solution to that one. Um, 
and think about the role of volunteers in the organisation's identity. So do they want to influence what your organisation does? There's a possibility that they do. There's a much stronger possibility that the reason they're joining your organisation is because they already agree with what you do. So they're likely to be your most fervent you know, promoters of your cause. Think of them as ambassadors. Think of them as going out and recruiting the next generation of volunteers that will work with your organisation. <coughs> if your organisation is all volunteer, um, so very often one of those that's set up, you know, in a very local, very grassroots way just for that, you know, local environment. Um, <coughs> what they mostly need is resources. So they need a physical site very often. They need help setting up websites, um, any kind of part-time use of resources, listing pooled resources, um, you know, cars, um, laptops, cameras, you know, whatever kind of equipment they need. Think about how... Um, those things can be pulled. The other thing that we found with um, community volunteer kind of grassroots organisations is that they have huge difficulties accessing financial services. Um, they very often raise funds. They either you know sell jam and cakes or they actually get a local grant to do something. And then it's very, very difficult for them to get a bank account or any way of managing this money. I did actually find one woman who had... Um, literally an envelope full of fibres under her mattress um, and this was how she was running um, her local um, community group um, don't try using human resources strategies developed for paid staff they don't work the whole concept of human resource management is based around the fact that you're paying people to do a job this is another area that I haven't got time to go into but you know Forget everything you ever learned about HR management if you're working with volunteers. Um, and provide training in traditional and social media because that's the one thing that particularly older volunteers really, really want is to get that publicity profile raised, you know, to raise awareness. If you can train them how to use media to do that, that's what they really want. Um, build teaching as well as learning opportunities into task design. Because you are employing experts by all means use their expertise to do the job but then they leave get them to teach the next generation how to do whatever it is that they're doing 99% of them will be delighted to do this one of the things that upsets and worries them most is the fact that their skills base is disappearing this knowledge is vanishing their knowledge of their communities is evaporating and once they've gone that's it what they really, really want is opportunities to teach it to the next generation. Um, develop ways of publicly recognising volunteer contributions. You know, how vitally important they are to the organisation. Um, you know, so obviously <coughs> certificates and photo opportunities and all the rest of it. Um, but make it clear in your publications, in your newsletters, what is contributed to the policy decisions you're making by unpaid experts. Um, and manage their exit as well as their recruitment to keep those doors open. One of the characteristics that we found in the volunteers that we interviewed is that people who are volunteers are serial volunteers. It's highly unusual for somebody to volunteer once, stop and never do it again. The chances are that they will volunteer over and over again on different projects. Now, you don't want to put them off for life 
by giving them an unhappy experience where they say, you know, forget this, I'm not bothering anymore. <coughs> um, so try and manage their exit, partly because they'll come back and work for you again, but also because they will then go and have an ambassadorial role for your organisation and they will recruit from their networks um, to bring more people into your organisation who will also work for free, if you're lucky. Um, that's just the references. This show is produced by Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.